September 5th, Labor Day weekend, 1921. Silent movie star and comedian Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle is in San Francisco with his buddies for a weekend holiday. There was a party. The illegal alcohol flowed and women joined in the mayhem. But when the Labor Day holiday is over, a 26-year-old starlet named Virginia Rappé is dead, seemingly suffering injuries while in Roscoe's room at the St. Francis Hotel. Regardless of his guilt or innocence, he would ultimately pay the price in scandal and cancel culture. This is Hollywood star Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle and the death of Virginia Rappé. Hey y'all, I'm Chris Calvert. And I'm her husband, Rob Potter. Welcome to Hitch to Homicide. For better or worse. Till death do us part. Welcome back, everybody. Yes, welcome, welcome, welcome. And for our friends in Indonesia, Selamat Detang, Selamat Detang, Selamat Detang. Very nice. There you go. <laughs> for our friends in Indonesia. Friends in Indonesia. Yep. Well, wherever you're listening, be sure to like, rate, review, subscribe. Yep. We truly thank all of you who've subscribed to the podcast. We're grateful. We appreciate your comments and your case suggestions. We love doing this podcast, and y'all just make it all the more enjoyable when you reach out to us. We got some wacky people out we there. We do. Speaking <laughs> of, yeah. go join the H2H In-Laws and Outlaws on Facebook. Great group of people with a lovely sense of humor when it comes to true crime. <laughs> I love all the memes that come on there. They just make me laugh. I love everybody in there. We are one big, crazy, dysfunctional true crime family. Just the way we like it. Yeah, and we appreciate everyone in that brood. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> in that motley crew. <laughs> well, I did this case three years ago. I remember. But I wanted to bring it back because it's the anniversary of Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle's faithful Labor Day weekend. We're getting ready to head into a long weekend here in the United States. And what's Labor Day without a little debauchery? What is it without some debauchery? I even <laughs> thought, I even had it in my notes, debauchery. <laughs> He's reading my mind, y'all. And I do not know these cases. Uh, this one I do know because we've already done it, but uh, you're kind of updating it. And I did. I got some extra information oh, cool. that I found out. Yeah, so lots, yeah. lots, lots, lots. But I don't know these cases. I've never heard them before now. I'm I'm <laughs> listening to them with you. Yes. Yes. That's why his gasps are real and <laughs> his eye rolls at my comments are also <laughs> very honest and truthful. It's not true. It's true. <laughs> Before we get started, let me thank some sources, Wikipedia, Smithsonian Magazine, the BBC, All Things Interesting, PBS, Fascinate.com, HeatherMonroe.com, and the magazine, The New Yorker. All right. Well, you ready? I am. Okay, let's do it. 
Roscoe Conklin Arbuckle was born on March 24, 1887 in Smith Center, Kansas. His parents are Mary E. Gordon, Molly, and William Goodrich Arbuckle. When he's born, Roscoe weighed in somewhere between 13 and 16 pounds. One source I even saw said he weighed 17 pounds. Wow, that's a big baby. It's a big baby. Push that thing out. Uh, you're a man. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> don't want to hear it. And women all over the globe right now are like, zip it, Rob. <laughs> I'm empathizing. Yeah, <laughs> of course you are. Well, because his father and mother were both really skinny people, his dad, William, thought that Roscoe was illegitimate. He was the milkman's son. Just like <laughs> everybody thought you were the mailman's son. Rob's the only redhead. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah. His father named him Roscoe after Senator Roscoe Conklin of New York because Conklin was a notorious philanderer. Oh. So it was like his dad's little jab. Yeah. He was also a man that Roscoe's father despised, obviously. And Roscoe's father shunned him from a very early age. And because he was such a big baby, he nicknamed him Fatty. Oh, wow. A name that would stick with Roscoe for the rest of his life. Great. That was his dad. That was his dad. Yeah. Now, because Roscoe weighed in at 13 or more pounds as a newborn, his mother had a very traumatic delivery, resulting in chronic health problems. God love her heart. Yeah. When Roscoe is almost two, his family moves to Santa Ana, California, where his father gets work in a hotel. And by the time Roscoe is eight years old, he's noticed by a man named Frank Bacon, Frank Bacon has a group of players, the Bacon Players. <laughs> I don't know if that's what they were called, wow. but Bacon was an American actor and playwright who, after a failed try at politics and boredom with a newspaper business he'd started, he sounds a lot like a creative person, yeah. you know, yeah. can't, can't stick with one thing. Yeah. He formed this acting company with his wife that toured mostly California venues. And in the early days of Bacon's vaudeville company, they were on the road and at the hotel in Santa Ana where Roscoe's father worked. And they invited little Roscoe to perform on their stage. Hmm. Okay. What, What did he do? Well, he's happy to oblige them and he delighted audiences. This is his first taste of showbiz. He sang. He was a singer. Okay. Singer, and he's very light on his feet. I'm going to talk about that a little bit. All 200 pounds of him. He's he's only eight. He's not 200 pounds yet, but he is light on his feet as a big man, too. Okay. But when Roscoe's mom dies three years later, his dad cuts Roscoe off from all support because he didn't think he's his son. Wow. And now he's blaming Roscoe for the death of his wife, Molly. Like, you were a big baby, you weren't my child, and now you've killed your mother. He's out on his own at 12 years old. Roscoe's able to find work in exchange for room and board at this local hotel, and he would sing around the hotel while he's working. He's 12 years old. 12 years old. He's an errand boy at the hotel, and he's an errand boy at the local theater. Hmm. And what happens is that the hotel staff hears him singing around the hotel, and he's so good, they ask him to sing in the hotel bar, Hmm. which he did as a 12-year-old, which just made me think of all these pictures that we have around our house of Rob as this (laughs) tiny little kid playing a guitar that's bigger than his whole body. (laughs) And if you don't believe me, I'm going to post a picture of it. (laughs) All right. I also read that his father showed up around this time drunk in a rage and he would beat Roscoe. 
And his dad remarries, but his mother actually once rescued him when his father was, quote, choking him and beating his head against a tree. Good Lord. So he suffered at the hands of some abuse of his father, and he doesn't feel very loved, but he's still going to turn out to be okay, which is just, you know, we talk about kids who are beaten as a child and have a rough childhood, and then they turn out to be a serial killer. And this guy turned out to be an international superstar. While he's this little kid singing in the bar, a professional singer hears him and invites him to perform at this amateur talent show. And the show is basically the audience deciding if the acts were any good or not. It's kind of like the Apollo. Yeah. So they exactly like the Apollo. They would clap or they would jeer or they would just flat out boo. And if you couldn't make it, if you couldn't cut the mustard, you were pulled off stage by the big shepherd's hook. I mean, like. Like the gong show. (laughs) <laughs> well, it made me think of like Bugs Bunny or something. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's but, like Rodney Dangerfield. Oh, <laughs> I get no respect. He, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's where the term he got the hook comes from. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Giving him the hook. Wow. He's gone. I didn't know that. Roscoe takes the stage and he starts singing and he's dancing and he did some clowning around, but he didn't really impress the audience and they started booing. Oh. And he saw the shepherd's hook coming out of the wings, like out of the corner of his eye. And while he's trying to run around and avoid the shepherd's hook, he trips, does a somersault into the orchestra pit (laughs) in a panic, and the audience goes wild. (laughs) (laughs) And he won the competition. Oh, you're kidding. For falling into the orchestra pit. Doing a somersault (laughs) into the orchestra pit. A star is born. There you go. At the age of 17, Sid Grauman invites him to perform at the Unique Theater in San Francisco. And again, for reference, Sid Grauman was an American showman from Indianapolis who created two of the most famous landmark theaters, Grauman's Chinese Theater, where the stars put all their hands in cement, and the Egyptian Theater. They're both in Hollywood. Okay. But before that, he had a vaudeville theater in San Francisco on Market Street. Hmm. Now, Sid Grauman, who is a huge deal, invites Roscoe to come to San Francisco to perform, which he did. And these two are going to have a lifelong friendship. Gotcha. A year later, Roscoe joined the Pantages Theater Group, touring up and down the West Coast. Roscoe Arbuckle was billed as the main act. Hmm. And after lots of success, they took the show on the road. They went on tour. I mean, how many times can you fall into an orchestra pit? I don't think he always <laughs> fell into the orchestra pit, but he has an amazing voice. He's a really good singer and a great dancer. Okay. And it's vaudeville, so I'm sure he's sure. cracking jokes and sure. doing – he did lots of pratfalls, which we're going to talk about too. Okay. But while he's with the Panages Theater Group, Roscoe meets his future wife, actress Minta Durfee. Minta's from L.A. and the daughter of Charles Warren Durfee and Flora Adkins. And when Minta and Roscoe first meet, she's 18 and just entering show business as a chorus girl. But Minta is going to be a silent film actress. And in fact, she will be the very first leading lady of none other than Charlie Chaplin. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. You're going to hear lots of like old Hollywood names today. Minta and Roscoe fall in love and marry on August 6th, 1908, on the 
stage of the Bide a While Theater. Oh, wow. They got married on the stage. Yeah. Kind of like baseball players getting married. In the- <laughs> that's only in the movies. That's <laughs> that's in the movie with Kevin Costner. Yeah, Bull Durham. Bull Durham. And then they <laughs> high five off. <laughs> exactly. Off the field. Mint is 19. Roscoe's 21. They're kind of like, you know, Mutt and Jeff together or like Laurel and Hardy because Roscoe's 5'10", 300 pounds. Yeah. And Minta's like five foot flat yeah. and probably weighs 100 pounds. Wow. So they're, you know, he's big, she's tiny. Wow. And after they marry, Roscoe joins the Morosco Burbank Stock Vaudeville Company touring in China and Japan. And he won't be home until 1909. But when he does come back to the States, he begins his film career with the Selig Polyscope Company. And by July, he's had his first film, Ben's Kid. Okay. Now, it's really important to note that being in films isn't considered real acting at this time. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Real actors were on stage. Uh They were live and on stage. And most actors considered it a bit degrading to do film. Wow. Can you imagine now? You know, tell that to Tom Cruise. Well, <laughs> yeah, because fil- television and film actors make way more than Broadway Yeah, but people. if you think about it, I mean, back in the 70s and even the 80s, um, being on TV was kind of a a lower echelon of – Was it really? Yeah. They, if you were a TV star – there was no way you were going to be a film star. And if you were a film star, you wouldn't stoop to do TV. You wouldn't even think about doing TV. It's kind of like a long time ago when I did advertising years ago in the 80s and 90s. American stars would have ads like in Japan yeah. for water or something that they would never do in the United States. But yeah. now everybody's everybody kind of does everything. So Yeah. But Roscoe had a hard time finding work on the stage all the time. And so he switched over to the silver screen. Hmm. And you know what? Working actors do that all the time. Now it's about having a job, I think, more than anything, (laughs) especially right now. When he began appearing sporadically in Selick, they were called One Reelers, which is just a one reel movie that's only about 12 or 13 minutes long. And it's almost always comedy. He does this until 1913 when he moves to Universal Pictures, which had just opened its doors the year before in 1912. So Fatty Arbuckle, Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle, was really in Hollywood at the birth of motion pictures. Yeah. At Universal, he became a star in all of producer-director Mac Sennett's Keystone Cops comedies. Mm. Mac Sennett was a Canadian-American actor and filmmaker who was known as the first, quote, king of comedy. And he's producing and directing the Keystone Cops, starring Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. Now, part of the appeal of Fatty Arbuckle on screen is his size, of course. But remember, Roscoe didn't like being called Fatty. And he wouldn't use his size for, like, a cheap laugh. Mm. Quote, I refuse to try to make people laugh at my bulk. Personally, I cannot believe that a battleship is a bit funnier than a canoe, but some people do not feel that way about it. End quote. (laughs) Okay. I mean, he's funny even trying to make a point. Right. Yeah. Defending himself, he's going to make it humorous. Right. Right. And before, just like I said before, he's really light on his feet. And he can sing, but these are silent movies, so it doesn't matter. But because he's so talented and so um, emotive with his body, I really think that's part of the appeal of his movies. Right. Yeah. 
But he's in Hollywood when all of this is just getting started. He's a pioneer of Hollywood. Right. He wasn't getting all the parts he wanted, but Roscoe didn't give up. And he was famous and funny before a younger man would happen upon Hollywood a year after his Keystone movies were a hit. In 1914, Charlie Chaplin arrived in Hollywood. Yep. And Roscoe and Charlie would be grand friends. Oh, really? Yes. In fact, Roscoe was a mentor to Charlie. And it's been rumored that Roscoe helped Charlie pick out one of the most iconic costumes of his career. Oh, really? Yeah. The the bowl, bowler hat and... Yep. Oh, wow. And Charlie even borrowed a little bit from Roscoe, because if you've ever seen Charlie Chaplin do the shoe dance mm-hmm. with the bread on the end of the two the forks, forks yeah. yeah, in the movie Gold Rush, it's 1925, Roscoe Arbuckle did it first really? in a movie called The Rough House, filmed in 1917. I did not know that. Now, remember how I told you that Roscoe is light on his feet and his comedies are well known for their rowdy, fast-paced scenes, lots of car chases, lots of sight gags, and he loved the old pie in the face. (laughs) In fact, the very first pie in the face was from the June 1913 Keystone One reeler called A Noise from the Deep, and it starred... Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle and Mabel Norman. And Mabel Norman will be known for owning her own movie studio and production company. She'll do 112 movies with Charlie Chaplin. Wow. And 17 with Roscoe. She would write them, she would direct them, or she would co-write or co-direct these movies with Charlie as her leading man. And I wrote this in my notes three years ago, and I'm going to say it now. She was the first girl boss in Hollywood. Ah. And it's been said that Roscoe didn't have a problem sharing the screen with his co-stars. In fact, he loved it. He was a collaborator. Gotcha. And he even had his dog Luke in his movies. Really? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Silent film star Louise Brooks once shared a dance with Roscoe, and she likened the experience to, quote, floating in the arms of a huge donut. (laughs) Really delightful, end quote. Floating in the arms of a huge donut. (laughs) That's pretty good. In 1914, Paramount Pictures, a movie studio that's only two years old, offers Roscoe an unheard of deal. $1,000 a week plus 25% of all profits. Wow. He creates his own production company and started just gathering all of this talent, including a stage star who wanted to make his transition to films, Buster Keaton. Buster was famous for his stone face during his comedy routines. And Roscoe put Buster in one of his films just to see how he's going to do. And he was great. And they just kind of improved the whole thing. And Roscoe teaches Buster everything he knows about the movies, in front of the camera, behind the camera, everywhere. And Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton would be Roscoe's lifelong friends. Nice. Now, with his new $1,000 a week and 25% of the profits deal, Roscoe has complete artistic control to make movies starring Fatty Arbuckle, and Mabel Normand. And these movies are so popular and so lucrative for the studio that in 1918, Paramount offered Roscoe a three-year, $3 million contract. Wow. That's $55 million today. Wow. He was the highest paid actor in Hollywood. Good grief. Who's the highest paid actor in Hollywood right now? I think it's Tom Cruise. Is it Tom Cruise? Yeah, pretty sure. He was the Tom Cruise. Yeah. 
All he had to do was make 18 films over three years, six films a year. And that sounds like a lot. But if you think about what those films were like compared to what today's films are like. Yeah, it was like guerrilla filmmaking, you know, (laughs) you just roll the camera and go for it. Yeah, one shot, you're done. Whereas today it's like they do the shot over and over again, different lines, different angles. Yeah. Yeah. But one of the clauses in Roscoe's contract was basically cruel. It was that he had to stay over 250 pounds Mm. and he would even get a bonus if he added 50 or 100 pounds to his frame. What? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Hmm. And Roscoe was okay with it. And he spent the rest of his life hovering around 300 pounds. Now, he handed over his production company to Buster Keaton and he takes this $55 million deal. Who wouldn't? Yeah. (laughs) Let, Let me think about that. Okay. Yeah, I'm done. I'm taking the deal. Yep. And even though Roscoe hated the name Fatty, he would say that Fatty was the character he played, but it wasn't him. Mm. And when he played a female, and there are some funny shots of him in a dress, the character's name was Miss Fatty. Mm. But he didn't like being called Fatty off screen. And if someone did call him that, he was known to say, quote, I've got a name, you know, end quote. (laughs) So he has a little bit of a chip on his shoulder about it. In 1921, Roscoe and his wife Minta separate. Roscoe had uh, all these work-related injuries because he's done all these pratfalls. Yeah. I mean, don't you remember how Chevy Chase on Saturday Night Live would always, like, fall and then he ended up having a bad back, right? Yeah. Yeah. But their marriage is falling apart because Roscoe had developed an alcohol and morphine dependency. Mm. By the fall of 1921, things have been a little hectic for Roscoe. He had second-degree burns on his rear end. Here, what? Here's the story about that. He was in Los Angeles having his Pierce Arrow automobile serviced okay. when he sat down on an acid-soaked rag Ooh. sitting in the garage, and the acid burned through his pants Ugh. to his rear end, and he had second-degree burns on his butt. Wow. And on top of this— He's really tired from this hectic filming schedule. I'm sure. And he's battling his own demons at the same time. Yeah. All this while producing some of the most wholesome entertainment there was. He was even quoted as saying, quote, I say produce nothing that will offend the proprieties, whether applied to children or grownups. My pictures are turned out with clean hands and therefore with a clean conscience, which like virtue is its own reward, end quote. Well, there you go. Yeah, he's like... Good for him. Yeah, I, you know, I want, to, I want to put out good material. Yeah. September 1921, Roscoe is weary and tired and stressed. It's been a long summer, just like it has been for a lot of yeah. us. <laughs> and for Labor Day weekend, a couple of his friends want him to get away from Hollywood and all its pressures. And these friends are actor-director Lowell Sherman and Fred Fishback, a writer-director-actor. These are a couple of his buddies, and they just decide what Roscoe needs is a trip to San Francisco. A little R&R. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Even though Roscoe almost backs out at the last second, Fred said, nope, you're coming. And he got him a rubber-padded ring to sit on (laughs) as they drove up the coast. Wow. So they load up the car. Off they go. They check into three rooms at the St. Francis Hotel, a hotel that is still operational today. Mm. 
Room 1219, a room Roscoe and Fred would share. Room 1221, a private room for Lowell. And 1220, the designated party room. (laughs) And I read where people still to this day ask for these rooms at the hotel or they want to see them. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Roscoe's buddies had it all planned out. Lots of women, lots of booze, lots of partying, and... Uh, Lots of debauchery. Lots of debauchery. (laughs) It's prohibition, but Fred procures a bootleg case of gin for the occasion from Gobi's Grill. (laughs) Wow. I read that and it just cracked me up. Getting the illegal booze from Gobi. There you go. Late Monday morning, September 5th, 1921, a gown salesman named Ira Fort Lewis was leaving the nearby Palace Hotel to meet one of Roscoe's friends. And in the Palace lobby, he spots another group from L.A. and asks a bellboy about the chic young woman with dark hair. She was, the bellboy said, quote, Virginia Rappé, the movie actress, end Mm. quote. The 26-year-old starlet, Virginia Rappé, was known to Roscoe and his buddies, and they sent word inviting her for afternoon drinks. Okay. So let's talk about Virginia for a sec. All right. Virginia was born on July 7th, 1895 in Chicago. Her mother was Mabel Rapp. She's born Virginia Rapp. She added Rappé a little bit later because she thought it sounded uh, more sophisticated. A little more exotic. Yeah. Yeah. But her mom is a sometimes chorus girl and single mother. And when Virginia is 11, her mom dies. So she goes to her grandmother's to live. And by the age of 14, she's working as a model. And she is very pretty. Mm -hmm. Virginia began posing for local artists in Chicago and fashion designers. And when she's 18, she leaves Chicago. She heads for California, San Francisco. And there she posed for dress designer Robert Moskowitz. And Virginia and Robert fall in love. They become engaged. But Robert is hit and killed by a streetcar. Oh, wow. And Virginia, her heart is broken. And after his death, she moves south to L.A. She's going to become a movie star. There you go. She wanted to be the next Mary Pickford. Hmm. Not long after, in 1917, she found work in silent movies. She's hired by director Fred Balchauffer. She was given a prominent role in his film Paradise Garden, opposite star Harold Lockwood, which made me think of Lena Lockwood oh, from yeah. Singing in the Rain. Yeah. Yeah. I can't stand him. <laughs> That's good. You could have been in that movie. I love her character. <laughs> I can't stand him. Mm-hmm. She even worked with, Virginia even worked with a very young Rudolph Valentino in Over the Rhine. And her claim to fame was winning an award as, quote, best dressed girls in pictures, end quote, for this film. Then there's that. And there's that. (laughs) This film is not going to be released until 1920. It's eventually, it's going to be recut, re-released, which just, you know, it's crazy to me that they would recut and re-release a film (laughs) under a different name. Yeah. But that's exactly what they do with this film. Mm. In 1918, it's rumored that Virginia is pregnant and she goes to Chicago to have the child and give it up for adoption. Maybe. Maybe not. It is a rumor. So hold that thought in your pocket. Okay. In 1919, Virginia falls in love again. This time, it's Hollywood director and producer Henry Lerman, which kind of guarantees she's going to have some sort of part in whatever project he's doing, right? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. 
1920, the two of them move in together and had plans to marry. So they're living together as lovers, even though when the 1920 census is taken, she's listed as a boarder at his home in L.A. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> mm-hmm. She appeared in four films of Henry's, maybe more. No, what? No one really knows because tons of his films are just lost. So, I mean, what happened to his films? Does anybody know? Well, a lot of them were just destroyed. And if you remember the films that they're highly flammable. Uh, Yeah. So if you've ever seen. um, Inglorious Bastards. Inglorious Bastards. Yeah. yeah, But they're they're dangerous, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So what the Motion Picture Academy has now is like locked away. And there's some stuff online, but a lot of things are just destroyed. And a lot of things of. Roscoe Fatty Arbuckles are destroyed as well, but we'll talk about why in a sec. Okay. Now, what is known about Virginia is that she was a Hollywood party girl. Mm. I actually read in one source that likened her to what a modern day influencer would be like back then in 1921. She was like an online influencer. Gotcha. She was a Hollywood party girl. Not that all influencers are party girls. Don't email me. (laughs) Just don't do it. But she was very out there. Very, you know, look at me, see what I'm doing, that kind of thing. She wanted the limelight. She wanted the limelight. Yes. She wanted it bad. (laughs) And on Labor Day week in 1921, she finds herself with her friend, Bambina Maud Delmont. Bambina. Yeah, this lady, let me tell you. Hmm. On the Monday morning of Labor Day weekend, September 5th, 1921, Roscoe Arbuckle wakes up after a night of partying around 10.30 a.m. Not bad if you've been partying all night to get up at 10.30. Yeah, I was going to say. And he finds that there are women who've come to the party room, room 1220. There's showgirls, Zev Pivrun and Alice Blake, Bambina Maud Delmont, Virginia Rappe, and Virginia's manager and Roscoe's friend, Al Simnocker. Some of these names, I'm telling you. <laughs> Simnocker. Simnocker. Anything that's got knocker at the end <laughs> is a punchline for something, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure he ended up in a few school lockers. Yeah. yeah. If there were lockers back yeah, then. True. Probably his head in the toilet. I mean, it's 1920, whatever. But Roscoe's still in his pajamas and his purple robe. (laughs) Loved that. He was wearing a purple robe. But that's no reason not to, like, get the party started again, right? Yeah, hair of the dog. It's his weekend off. Virginia apparently is wearing a jade skirt and blouse with a Panama hat trimmed with a matching ribbon. Wow. She's very stylish. Nice. Now, Virginia and Roscoe know each other. Show business is a very small world, as my husband will tell you, as will our daughter tell you. You run into the same people all the time. But Virginia really wasn't a fan of Roscoe. She was kind of grossed out by him. She thought he was crude. She (laughs) thought he was classless. And it's been said that Virginia didn't know That this was Roscoe's party, that she was going to this party and that it was actually him that was throwing the party. Hmm. Now, regardless, she gets there and she starts drinking gin blossoms, just like everybody else, until they're all three sheets to the wind. Right. They ordered up a Victrola and danced to Ain't We Got Fun. (laughs) Thought that was hilarious, too. More booze came in from Gobies. It's quite a party. (laughs) Gobies is... They're all that. If you if you want your illegal prohibition booze, Gobi <laughs> apparently was the place to get it from in San Francisco in yeah. 1921. Yeah. 
Hours later in the afternoon, Virginia's drunk and she's sick. She excuses herself from the party that's going strong. She goes into Roscoe and Fred's room, room 1219, around 3 p.m. And Roscoe follows not long after, excusing himself from the party. And he closes the door behind him. And what happens next will be examined, contested, and scrutinized forevermore. Mm. There are two stories of what happened from this point going forward. Kind of one, because the other one keeps changing over and over and one stays the same i will let you decide do not send me an email about me too i've had my fair share of sexual harassment in my day i believe women so before you send me an email now that we're getting into the meat of this just know that okay i'll stop you there there you go <laughs> this is how one version of the story goes all right Bambina Maud Delmont, who liked to be called Maud, realizes Virginia has been gone for a while. And she says that she hears screams coming from Roscoe and Fred's room. Hmm. And when she goes to check on her friend, Roscoe answers the door in his pajamas and robe. He never took them off. And according to Maud, Roscoe silently flashes her a sinister smile while behind him, Virginia is laying on the smaller of the two beds in the room, writhing in pain. And according to Maud, Virginia screamed, quote, he did this, he hurt me, I'm dying, end quote. Wow. Now, Virginia's manager, Al Simnocker, comes into the room and suggests that Virginia needs an ice bath to sober her up. So Al and Maud get Virginia into the tub. They give her an ice bath in this room. She's screaming, and it seems like the ice is making her pain worse. Yeah. Honestly, if you've ever done an ice bath like for health reasons or after working out or something, it is not fun. So I can't imagine <laughs> being drunk and in pain and being put into an ice bath. Yeah, two things I won't do. Um, I won't get into the ocean when I'm in California. Because <laughs> it's so cold? Because it's so cold. And I don't take any shower that's below 80 degrees. <laughs> Although he thinks that I take a shower so hot that it's going to boil him. You know. Come on. I'm a really? guy. I'm a guy. The women, we like our showers hot. We yeah. just can't help it. Yeah. yeah. But Maud says that Roscoe threatened to throw Virginia out the window if she didn't shut up. Wow. But instead, he just left the room. Okay. And by 4 p.m., Maud and Al decide they should call the doctor. And Dr. Carho comes to the room and examines her around 4 p.m. He can't find anything wrong with her, and he leaves at 7. So he was there for three hours. Hmm. Was he drinking gin blossoms, too? <laughs> he joined the party. He must have. Yeah. Then Maud calls the doctor back again, saying Virginia was in agony. And this time, Dr. Beardsley shows up. He gives Virginia a shot of morphine. On top of alcohol. On top of alcohol. Well, there's a smart move. But he does this and said she should sleep it off. Yeah, Dr. Beardsley, yeah. she might not ever wake up. Yeah, that's going to be a long sleep. Yeah, that's sleeping beauty sleep. <laughs> but Dr. Beardsley would be back at 4 a.m. and also 5 a.m. on Tuesday, September 6th. It's at this point Dr. Beardsley would conclude that Virginia was suffering from an internal injury. It took him that long to figure it out. He inserted a metal catheter into her urethra and said he thought her bladder was injured. Ugh. And he didn't know the severity 
of this injury, but thought most bladder ruptures are caused by external force. So could her fall off the bed or all of her severe vomiting, could it be enough to cause this? And the doctor's like, "Mm, no, that wouldn't cause that wouldn't cause a ruptured bladder. Right. In the meantime, Roscoe and his buddies check out of the hotel and they go back to L.A. I also read that Roscoe took a steamship, like an overnight cruise ship, from San Francisco to Los Angeles. Okay. And I looked it up, and this was a thing. There were two ships that did this, the Harvard and the sister ship, the Yale. Really? So it was like a cruise ship that you took an overnight steamer yeah. from San Francisco to L.A. Hmm. Sort of like taking an overnight train from Milan to Paris, yeah. Rob, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we thought it would be so romantic. <laughs> it was just a train. It was a train. <laughs> it was a train. With the cramped quarters in a bunk bed. Yeah, and <laughs> we had to hand over our passports and the the porter came in. He was like, lock this door. I was like, what kind of train are we on? Is this the Orient Express? Yeah. Is somebody going to die tonight? That's kind of what it felt like. It, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah expectations versus reality. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What you think it's going to be in your mind and when you actually get there and you go, yeah, okay, well, we won't do this again. Yeah, no, yeah. no. But I think that it was very luxurious at the time because it looks like a huge cruise ship mm. that they get on, the the Yale and the Harvard. I thought that was kind of interesting too. And I'm sure it wasn't cheap. I'm sure it was not cheap, but he's Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. Yeah. But according to Maud, she spent the day nursing Virginia, who drifted in and out of consciousness. Virginia, when conscious, would scream in agony. Maud asked for the doctor to come back again. He agrees. It's at this point, according to Maud, that the doctor thinks, look, Virginia should go to the hospital. Well, I was going to say. You think? <laughs> Gee whiz. Okay. But that would prompt a visit from the police. Mm. And according to Maud, there was no time to clean up all the illegal alcohol uh, from gobles or gobies or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So Maud doesn't take her to a hospital. She takes Virginia to the Wakefield Sanatorium, which served as a maternity hospital and sometimes abortion clinic. Okay. That's called foreshadowing. Uh oh. Now, Dr. Rumfeld, a known abortionist, examined her, and his diagnosis was alcohol poisoning. Hmm. But Virginia's health declined over the next couple of days, and when she was awake, according to Maud, Virginia told her that Fatty did this to her. And on September 9th, 1921, Virginia Repay slipped into a coma and died. Hmm. And upon autopsy, it was discovered that she had a ruptured bladder, and she died of acute peritonitis. Wow. Now, rewind four days. Okay. This is the other story. Right. It's all the same to a point. Virginia arrives at 1030 with her manager and Maude. They're all wrecked from drinking gym blossoms illegally. And Virginia leaves the party and goes into Roscoe and Fred's room. Now, Roscoe had known Virginia for about six years. And according to Roscoe and others at the party, around noon on Monday, September 5th, Roscoe went into his room. He leaves the party. He's going to change his clothes. Because May Taub, who is the daughter-in-law of Billy Sunday, a well-known baseball player at the time, had asked Roscoe for a ride into town. And Roscoe's still in his pajamas and a robe, his purple robe. Mm -hmm. When he opens the door to his room, Roscoe finds Virginia in the bathroom vomiting into the toilet. Virginia tells Roscoe that she doesn't feel well. Duh. And she asks if she can lie down. So Roscoe washes her face and carries her to a bed, then goes out of the room and asks everybody else at the party, come take care of Virginia. Yeah. Or will you help me with this? 
And when he and the other guests go back into the room, Virginia's on the floor near the end of the bed, tearing at her clothing. She's going into these violent convulsions. Hmm. And to calm her down, they put her in the bathtub with cool water. Then Roscoe and Fred moved her to a private room, Lowell Sherman's room, 1227. It's at this point the two of them call the hotel manager and the hotel doctor. And at no time is Roscoe ever alone with Virginia with the door closed, although there are conflicting testimony about that. Right. The only time they're one-on-one, according to many of the sources in the room, including Roscoe, was when he found her in his bathroom getting sick. Gotcha. Now, they all think Virginia's just drunk, including the doctor, who says she'll sleep it off. Roscoe leaves the hotel, drives May Taub into town, and Virginia was what we would call today sex positive. In 1921, they would have called her promiscuous. Gotcha. Because she's a woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Now, that aside, she had a history of heavy drinking. She liked to party. And when she did, she was generally known for going over the line, for just doing a little bit too much, drinking a little bit too much. She also had a history of bladder problems that were exacerbated by drinking alcohol. Ah. But Roscoe thinks, just like everybody else in the room, except for maybe Maude, That's just Virginia. She's done all of this before. She's a partier. And the doctor even said she'd be fine. She'd sleep it off. Right. So Roscoe leaves and heads back to L.A. Okay. Now, as soon as Virginia passes away, two days later at the sanatorium, Maude Delmont is full of stories, stories that will change and change and change. What was important, though, is that a young starlet of 26 years old was dead, and her death and all the unknowns devolved into lurid stories and speculation about what actually went on in these three hotel rooms and what kind of debauchery, our word for the day, were these icons of Hollywood involved in. Sure. Now, when word makes it back to Roscoe and his buddies, they all get together for a midnight meeting at Sid Grauman's Million Dollar Theater. And Virginia's friend, Al Simnocker, or her agent or her manager, depending on which source you use, he's there. Mm. But apparently this is where Roscoe's attorney tells him, keep your mouth shut. Like he's they're going through the whole day. This is what happened. This is how it happened. And his attorney tells Roscoe, <laughs> keep your trap shut. Lock it up, dude. Yeah. Just don't say anything. Yeah. Maude Delmont tells the police that after Roscoe and Virginia had a few drinks together, he pulled her into this adjoining room saying, quote, I've waited for you for five years and now I've got you. How does she know all that? Well, this is this is what Maude is saying what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. She says 30 minutes passed, and then she hears screaming, so she knocked on the door. Then she kicked down the door. After a delay, Roscoe came to the door. He's wearing his pajamas and Virginia's hat cocked at an angle, smiling his, quote, foolish screen smile, end quote. Ugh. And behind him is Virginia on the bed moaning, quote, Arbuckle did it. That's what Maude tells the police. Virginia said, Arbuckle did it. Okay. Yeah. So she's confiding in me. Virginia's confided in me. All right. Now, during this time, William Randolph Hearst, who owned the largest newspaper chain and media company, was all about yellow journalism. Oh, yeah. Emphasizing sensationalism. I've been to the Hearst Castle. It's pretty impressive. Well, he made a lot of money on this case. Yeah, I'm sure he did. He sure did. He even talks about it. Yeah. But he wasn't he wasn't really into journalism. He was into selling papers. Hmm. And he owned the San Francisco Examiner and the New York Journal. And before anybody is charged with anything, 
All the Hearst papers trumped up their fantasy of what might have happened that night, all fueled by Maud. Wow. They ran stories saying that while sexually assaulting Virginia Rappe, the 266-pound star, Fatty Arbuckle, had ruptured her bladder. And with help and stories from Maud, it was speculated that he didn't wash her face, that ice wasn't rubbed on her stomach, that he'd used the ice to sexually violate her. What? Later, that became that he sexually violated her with a Coca-Cola bottle. And then it went on to be that he sexually violated her with a bottle of champagne. She was. So the stories just get wilder and wilder. Yeah. Yeah. Selling papers, getting clicks. Yeah, Exactly. The San Francisco Examiner ran an editorial cartoon entitled, They Walked Into His Parlor, which was Roscoe in the middle of this giant spider web with two liquor bottles and seven women caught in his web. Good grief. His Labor Day party was billed as an orgy, and Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle was a rapist. (laughs) He went from having a party to being a rapist. Yep, he sure did. Wow. Now, a warrant for Roscoe's arrest is issued for first-degree murder on September 10th, 1921, one day after Virginia dies. Roscoe turns himself in on September 17th. He was held in jail for three weeks in cell number 12 on Felony Row before arranging bond. Jeez. The police were more than happy to release his mugshot to the press while he sits in jail. And during all of this, Roscoe did exactly what his attorney told him to do. Keep your mouth shut. He kept his mouth shut except to say, I'm innocent. Yeah. And he hires attorney Gavin McNabb. Okay. Now, it's really important to know that during this time of prohibition, there were all these religious groups looking to have these movies, all this new Hollywood content censored. Mm. They called it Hollywood dirt. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And this story just added to it. It gave these religious groups who were looking to make this happen. They used Roscoe as their poster boy for bad behavior in Hollywood. Wow. This case and Virginia's death is actually pivotal in what will eventually lead to movie ratings, mm. G, P, G, R, and X. Wow. Because of this case, because of Virginia's death. Amazing. I mean, she wanted to make a mark in Hollywood, so she did. <laughs> she did it. Yeah. Meanwhile, an autopsy, or kind of an autopsy, is happening. Dr. Rummel and Dr. Orphis. Orphis? Pause for Rob to make a joke. <laughs> Hi, I'm Dr. Orphis. <laughs> Excuse me? That's like your GYN being Dr. Love. Hey, I'm Dr. Love. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Okay. He performed an autopsy, quote, at the request of friends of the deceased, end quote. Nobody really knows who these friends are. Hmm. Doctors concluded that her bladder had ruptured. They removed her stomach and sent it to the city chemist for testing. Then they removed her uterus and fallopian tubes and instructed an orderly to destroy them. What? Yeah. Okay. And remember, the autopsy is happening at the sanatorium where they took her, the place where babies are born and illegal abortions are done. And oh, by the way, the guy doing the autopsy was also her doctor and a known abortionist, Dr. Rummel. Okay. But California required a coroner to perform all autopsies when the matter of death is unclear. So the first autopsy is completely unauthorized. Mm. And in comes Dr. Strange. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> oh Dr. Strange comes in. He comes in to perform an official autopsy. He doesn't have a full body. Yeah. 
but he does determine that the cause of death was peritonitis, an infection of the membrane lining the abdominal wall as the result of a ruptured bladder from external force. Hmm. So they're saying because Roscoe weighed 266 pounds, on top of her, he could have ruptured her bladder or he forced something inside her. Now, according to today's medical texts and papers, there are a couple of ways to rupture the bladder. Blunt or penetrating trauma. Blunt trauma is the most common, but it requires the force of like a bad car accident Mm. or a fall from way high up. And this kind of external blow to the lower abdomen, it has a pelvic fracture. Yeah. 95% of these injuries also have a pelvic fracture. Gotcha. And Virginia didn't have a fracture, a pelvic fracture, any other. So if he if he did this laying on top of her, don't you think he would have like crushed her pelvis? Yeah. I mean, and it just seems kind of improbable that being on top. I, yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm not a doctor. I don't know. But that just seems a little fishy to me. Or it could have happened from some type of gynecological procedure, mm-hmm. like maybe a I botched know. abortion. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Now, regardless, the media has already said Roscoe is guilty as sin. And studios have put out these strict instructions for their stars not to defend Roscoe in any way. Wow. And this is a time when the studios actually owned the actors, not the other way around. Right, right. But Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin came to his defense. And one actor who did speak freely to the papers was William S. Hart, who publicly declared his certainty of Arbuckle's guilt. Really? Yeah. Hart, it's worth mentioning, had never even worked with Roscoe. Uh He'd never even met him. Hmm. And later, Roscoe will write a film about a thief that resembles Hart who beats his wife. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you go. A little bit of artistic uh, karma. karma. Yeah. 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 So Roscoe in this Labor Day weekend debauchery in San Francisco, not only is it the first Hollywood scandal, he's the first canceled celebrity. Yeah. Yeah. Canceled. Don't know the facts, but we're going to cancel him. Yep. San Francisco theaters immediately banned Roscoe's films and Sid Grauman pulled his new picture, Gasoline Gus, from the Million Dollar Theater. Wow. And within a week, his movies had vanished nationwide. And in one Wyoming theater, it was reported that a mob of cowboys shot up his image on the screen. <laughs> it's not true. It wasn't true. The theater yeah. owner made the whole thing up for publicity. Yeah. Everybody's out for publicity. Gotta make a buck off of this. Speaking of making a buck, Paramount stopped paying Roscoe 11 days after his arrest on the grounds that he was locked in a San Francisco jail and he's unable to report to work. She was. And the next day, the very next day, Universal Pictures wrote a morality clause into its contracts, mandating non-payment of performers who, quote, forfeit the respect of the public, end quote. Wow. Yeah. And other studios followed. Wow. And these new morality clauses would have horrendous consequences for some of the stars. I'm sure. (laughs) Like when Gloria Swanson became pregnant by a man who wasn't yet her husband, Mm -hmm. she was so afraid of being canceled that she got a botched abortion and nearly died. Wow. Yeah. It's it's like the um, Hail Caesar. It's exactly Hales. Well, you know they they took tons of real storylines for yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, the 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 studio lawyer actually acts as her 
uh, he's going to adopt the baby or yes, something? Yes, she's going away. Then she's going to have the baby. Then she's going to adopt her own baby. You know something like that probably uh, happened. I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. But there's this crazy media pile on. And on September 13th alone, her San Francisco examiner ran 17 stories about the scandal in one day. Gloria Swanson wrote in her autobiography, quote, the newspapers had proved in less than a week that the public got a much greater thrill out of watching stars fall than out of watching them shine, end quote. Yeah, sad but true. Very sad but true. Yep. On top of everything else, Roscoe is going to get a power-hungry DA Mm. as his prosecutor. Enter Matthew Brady, San Francisco district attorney, who has aspirations to be governor of the great state of California. Mm. Not helping matters, Paramount producer Adolph Zucker called up San Francisco DA Matthew Brady looking to cut a deal. What? Yeah, Zucker could lose millions if Fatty Arbuckle goes to jail and was willing to pay almost as much to keep him out of jail. Wow. The selectively principled Brady was outraged. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. (laughs) How dare you? (laughs) He charges Adolf Zucker with attempted bribery. Wow. Oops. Not helping his friend, Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle, in any way. Yeah. Matthew Brady wanted murder one. What he ended up with was manslaughter. And here's the case he presented in trial number one, because hang on to your panties. There are three trials. Three trials where the star witness Maud Delmont would never be put on the stand because her story kept changing. In fact, at one point, she said she had like eight or nine whiskeys herself at the infamous party on Labor Day. Sometimes she claimed to be a lifelong friend of Virginia. Other times she insisted they just met right before the party. And they're taking the, this. Okay. Whatever. Well, they want to take him down. Yeah, but they're taking her word. They on are. Everything. They are. And Maud has a criminal history of fraud and extortion. <laughs> and, and then there's that. She's also a bigamist who married one man before divorcing another. She was. She was known as, quote, Madam Black. Because she procured young women for parties where wealthy male guests soon found themselves accused of rape and then blackmailed into paying Uh, Maud. There you go. Yeah. I wondered about that. Yeah. She's sending telegrams to the attorneys in San Francisco saying, quote, we have Roscoe Arbuckle in a hole. There's a chance to make some money out of him. I mean, yeah. The newspapers never questioned Maud's version of events, and they kept going after Roscoe. His reputation was in shambles, even after Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin, like, stepped forward to say, none of this is true. The DA's first witness during the trial included Betty Campbell, a model who attended the party and testified that she saw Roscoe with a smile on his face hours after the alleged rape. (laughs) He's smiling. Don't smile, guys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just in case you might be accused. Yeah. There's a local hospital nurse who testified it was very likely that Roscoe raped Virginia and bruised her body in the process. And Dr. Edward Heinrich, a local criminologist who claimed that the fingerprints on the door to the hallway proved that Virginia had tried to flee, but that Roscoe had stopped her by putting his hand over hers. This isn't a thing, guys. You can't do that. <laughs> 
God. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That thread just keeps getting thinner and thinner. Yeah. Dr. Arthur Beardsley, the hotel doctor who examined Virginia, testified that an external force seemed to have damaged the bladder. But then during cross-examination, the party-goer Betty Campbell revealed that D.A. Brady had threatened to charge her with perjury if she did not testify against Roscoe. Wow. And Dr. Heinrich's claim to have fingerprints was cast into doubt after the defense produced a maid from the St. Francis Hotel who said, you know, I cleaned that room (laughs) thoroughly before any investigation took place. And Dr. Beardsley admitted that Virginia had never mentioned being assaulted while he was treating her. Hmm. And defense attorney McNabb was able to get Nurse Holtzen to admit that the rupture of Virginia's bladder could very well have been a result of cancer, and that the bruises on her body could have also been a result of heavy jewelry she was wearing that evening. Hmm. I don't know that jewelry (laughs) causes bruises. I was going to say, that's some big jewelry. But according to him, he put her on the bed, and then they found her in the floor. So, I mean, uh, you know, I don't know. On November 28th, Roscoe testified as the defense's final witness. He was simple. He was direct. He was unflustered and direct in cross-examination. In his testimony, Roscoe gave the same story, and his story never changes. That Virginia came to the party sometime afterward, went into his room to change. He goes in there to change clothes, and he finds her getting sick. He's changing his clothes because May Taub wants a ride into town. He finds Virginia. Then he claimed Virginia told him she feels bad, wants to lay down. He carried her into the bedroom. He asks for people from the party to help. And then, you know, that's it. They go back in. She's tearing off her clothes. He's going to throw her out the window if she doesn't shut up. And then the doctor comes and says, she needs to sleep it off. And Roscoe leaves town. That was it. (laughs) Roscoe's going to say that he never physically hurt or sexually assaulted Virginia in any way during the party. And that he never made any any inappropriate sexual advances against her or any other woman in his life. Okay. Yeah. And then Roscoe's defense had all these witnesses that had information about Virginia's past, her sex life, her lovers, her promiscuity. Mm-hmm. But Roscoe wouldn't let him testify because he said out of respect for the dead, he didn't want to disparage her name, wow. even though they wanted to. Wow. In closing arguments, the defense attorney, Gavin McNabb, painted Arbuckle as a martyr who had, quote, sweetened a human existence by the laughter of millions and millions of innocent children, end quote. <laughs> That's a bit much, but yeah. okay. Yeah. The prosecution countered by saying he would, quote, never make the world laugh again, end quote. There's two weeks of testimony, 60 prosecution and defense witnesses, 18 doctors. (laughs) Finally, the defense rested. And on December 4th, 1921, the jury returned five days later, deadlocked, nearly 44 hours of deliberation. Mm. And a 10 to do not guilty verdict and a mistrial is declared. But he's done. I mean, he's ruined now. Yeah. I mean, you know, the barn door is open. Yeah. I mean, what's the point of closing you know, the, the horses out? Can't put that genie back. In yeah. The barn. Yep. Later, it's discovered that one of the jurors, a woman named Helen Hubbard, told the other jurors that she would vote guilty, quote, until hell freezes over, end quote. He's guilty. <laughs> wow. She didn't look at any of the exhibits or read the trial transcripts. She made up her mind in the courtroom. And later, it's discovered that her husband was an attorney who did business with the DA's office. (laughs) Oh, wow. The corruption. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Just a little bit, a little bit. (laughs) 
The second trial begins on January 11th, 1922. New jury, same legal defense and prosecution, as well as the same presiding judge. The same evidence is presented, but this time they have, uh, you know, a couple of extra witnesses. And one of them is this showgirl, Zay Prevron, who says that the DA forced her to lie. Wow. Yeah, I mean... They bring in a few extra people, but it's basically the same thing over and over and over again. The difference is in this second trial, Roscoe does not take the stand. Hmm. Why not? He doesn't take the stand because he just just doesn't. And I think he didn't do it because he thought, and I think his defense thought, we got this in the bag. We have this in the bag. The one thing that they did allow... The one thing that Roscoe would allow was Virginia's history of promiscuity and heavy drinking. Uh, that all comes out in the second trial. Okay. And it really sort of discredited a lot of the information that they had given mm-hmm. before. Okay. And it made people think. But guess what? Another hung jury. Hmm. Five days, 40 hours of deliberation. The jury returns on February 3rd. Deadlocked 10-2 majority in favor of a conviction. Wow. But it's another mistrial. Yeah. And even though Roscoe was like, okay, fine, I'm not going to jail, that very same day, his friend, Paramount Director William Desmond Taylor, he was murdered the night before. Wow. A murder that to this day is still unsolved. Really? Yeah, I like looked it up. I was like, well, who killed this guy? They still don't know. Jeez. Now, by the time Roscoe's third trial comes around, his films had been banned. Newspapers had been filled for the past seven months with stories of Hollywood orgies, murder, sexual perversion. Mm. William Randolph Hearst publicly said that the trial sold more papers (laughs) than the sinking of the Lusitania. Wow. Maude is out making money touring the country, giving a one-woman show as, quote, the woman who signed the murder charge against Arbuckle, end quote. She's out lecturing on the evils of Hollywood, which is so rich. Yeah, I was going to say, there's some irony. Yeah. (laughs) The third trial starts on March 13th, 1922, and this time the defense takes no chances. They take this aggressive defense. They completely tear apart the prosecution's case, and it's just, it's the same stuff over and over again, except the prosecution managed to get more stuff in about Virginia's sexual past. They really, really went after her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're talking about the fact that she would take her clothes off at parties. And then there's even this story that she has an illegitimate daughter in Chicago that she had a long time ago. Remember? Right. And just like the first trial, Roscoe testified this time. He's the final witness. He, he gives out this heartfelt denial in his testimony. And Buster Keaton's in the courtroom. He actually gets up on the stand. And he says that Maude is like involved in prostitution and extortion and blackmail. Wow. And finally, when he makes his closing statements, Roscoe's attorney finally just says, you know, this is just this has been BS from start to finish. Yeah. And even says that everything is based on Maude Delmont. The, quote, complaining witness who never witnessed, end quote. So all of this, this one woman starts all of this. Anyway, the jury deliberations start on April 12th. They take six minutes to return with a unanimous not guilty verdict. There you go. And five of those minutes were spent writing a formal statement of apology to Roscoe for putting him through everything. Wow. Yeah. Wow. 
After reading the apology, the jury foreman hands this piece of paper to Roscoe, who kept it for the rest of his life. Mm. And one by one, these jury members came up and shook his hand or hugged him. Mm. Years later, there are lots of experts who would say that Virginia's bladder ruptured as a result of an abortion she had before she came to this party, Mm. very shortly before this party. Gotcha. And her organs had been destroyed. It was now impossible to test for pregnancy, obviously, because they got rid of everything. Right. Yeah. Now, because there was alcohol at this party, Roscoe was forced to plead guilty to one count of violating the Volstead Act. Right. And he had to pay a one-time fee of $500. But he had so many legal bills, over $700,000 in legal bills for three trials. Hmm. That's $11 million today in legal fees. Wow. Yeah. He sells his house, all of his cars. He's just trying to pay off some of the debt. Yeah. And the scandal, it had all ruined his career. And even though he got an acquittal and an apology, the effects of it all continued to plague him. William H. Hayes, who served as the head of the newly formed Motion Pictures Producers and Distributors of America, MPPDA, the Mm -hmm. censors, Mm -hmm. they said that Roscoe, they cited Roscoe Arbuckle as an example of the poor morals in Hollywood On April 18th, 1922, six days after Arbuckle's acquittal, Hayes banned him from ever working in the United States for movies ever again. Wow. He had also requested that all showings and bookings of Roscoe Arbuckle films be canceled, and theater owners did just that. Wow. In December of the same year, under public pressure, Hayes lifts the ban, but Roscoe's still unable to get a job as an actor. And most theaters still weren't showing his movies. And that's part of the reason that so many of his movies, copies of his movies, have not survived. Because they didn't just ban them. They were like, burn them. Yeah, they were done. Yeah. In March of 1922, longtime friend Buster Keaton signed an agreement to give Roscoe 35% of all future profits from his production company, Buster Keaton Comedies. Because remember, he turned his production company over to Buster Keaton. Yeah. Then in 1924, after standing by him through all the madness, Minta Durfee and Roscoe Arbuckle finally divorced. He would marry again in 1925, Doris Dean, an actress, but that would also end in divorce. Roscoe, once the highest paid actor in Hollywood, was now blacklisted, and it would take him more than 10 years to make a comeback. And he did most of it directing under a pseudonym, William Goodrich, or Will Be Good. (laughs) Hint, hint, wink, wink. Yeah. But it's actually while he's doing this that he discovered more comedic talent. In Ohio, of all places, Rob. Yeah. The year is 1927. A young comedian named what? I bet you I know who it is. Bob Hope. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, Bob Hope. (laughs) He discovered Bob Hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In 1932, he married a third time, Addie McPhail, also an actress. She'd appear in 64 films. Side note, Addie was born in White Plains, Kentucky. Yeah, <laughs> he go. married a Kentucky girl. There you go. Also in 1932, he appeared in a series of shorts for Vitagraph Studios in Brooklyn. It was a small subsidiary of Warner Brothers, but his films for this little studio were enough to catch the eye of the big studio. And these are all talking pictures, too. Mm, okay. And he proved that he could be an actor and not just funny. Gotcha. And on June 23rd, 1933, Roscoe was offered a feature film contract by Warner Brothers, a studio that had only been around for 10 years, and he signed it 
He took his third wife out to dinner that night to celebrate, stating, quote, this is the best day of my life. Mm. He died that night in oh. New York City in the arms of his wife. So he worked wow. all this time to get back. He signs this contract. Wow. And he dies that night. Oh, my gosh. Roscoe yeah. Arbuckle was only 46 years old. Wow. He was cremated, his ashes scattered at sea, the Pacific Ocean. After his death, Roscoe was known to some as an innocent man and another as a symbol of jazz and Hollywood depravity. <laughs> Frank Capra, in his 1971 autobiography, said Roscoe, quote, had been brutally sacrificed on the altar of hate, end quote. Yeah. There was another theory that floated out there that Virginia was pregnant at the Labor Day party and she begged Roscoe for abortion money. Mm -hmm. And then the doctors discarded her uterus in a cover up. Well, yeah, I was going to say there was a reason why they discar discarded all of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, you just don't throw it out. Yeah, that's all they threw out. Yeah. 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 Whatever. Couple of side notes. Roscoe's second movie for Paramount, Brewster's Millions, mm -hmm. has been made six times. Yeah. The most recent version was released in 1985 and starred Richard Pryor, Richard Pryor. and John Candy. Yeah. yeah. Now, as an interesting side note, for decades, producers have tried to get a film greenlit about the life of Roscoe Arbuckle, Fatty right. Arbuckle. Yeah. A very popular screenplay circulated around Hollywood in the 80s and eventually landed in the hands of John Belushi, mm. then uh. John Candy, then Chris Farley. <laughs> because each time these actors got the script, they, they each suffered an untimely death. Wow. And it's been dubbed the Fatty Arbuckle Curse. curse. Now, I personally, I would love to see a movie about this guy's yeah, life. Absolutely. So interesting because he was a pioneer and he was the first Hollywood person to ever get canceled. Yeah. There but are that, no more overweight comedians, though. Are there none? No. Really? That, not that I know Everybody of. Everybody watches that one handsome kid, Matt Reif. He's yeah. the one who just riffs with his yeah. people in the audience. Yeah. Yeah. Very cute. Apparently, he's selling out shows. I think his audience is filled with women. <laughs> and maybe guys going there to pick up other women yeah. who are there for him. Yeah. But yeah, no, he's very different than uh, than Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. Yeah, about 200 pounds different. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Roscoe was a cute guy. He was. Yeah. I'll, I'll post all his pictures. He's a cute guy. But that is the story of Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. And the death of Virginia Rappé. And that's all I have to say about that. Hey, Hitch to Homicide listeners. The wait is over. If you're a reader or a fan of my Sex and Lies series, Book 10, Sex, Lies, and Rock and Roll is now available on Amazon. With a successful tour and two years of sobriety under his belt, rock star Noah Hart is ready to put his secrets and the past behind him. That is, until his former bandmates and business partners are murdered one by one, and suddenly he becomes the prime suspect. When FBI agent Louisa Hathaway is assigned to the case, no one, including her partner, is aware she carries her own secrets, including an undeniable infatuation with rock and roll's bad boy, Noah Hart. As the body count rises, Agent Hathaway is torn between unraveling the truth and falling for the man who might be the killer. Don't miss this new book, Sex, Lies, and Rock and Roll, by me, Chris Calvert. Only on Amazon. 
Rock and roll will never die, but it might kill you. You know, it's just sad that somebody that's filled with greed, and I'm obviously I'm on the side of Fatty Arbuckle or Roscoe, um, that somebody like this, uh, what was her name? The Virginia? No, oh, Maud. Maud, that she could just go in and make up whatever she wants. Her story keeps changing. But no, nothing to see here. Move on. We believe this. Yeah. And, you know, they took some guy's life and just completely destroyed, destroyed it. it. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. No. It's scary. For sure. Keep the mods out of your life, everybody. Yeah. Females and males. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Keep the mods out of your life. Yeah. yeah. It's it's a sad, sad story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's try to lighten it up a little bit with a little bless your heart. All right, our first one today, hampered by stupidity. Okay, I feel like that's me every day. (laughs) In Mesa, Arizona, a home break-in was foiled when the burglar jumped through the bedroom window and got trapped in a clothes hamper. (laughs) Cops took it from there. That definitely wasn't the kind of clean getaway he had planned. Wait, he goes through a window and into a clothes outside there's a clothes hamper? No, he crawled through the window into the house and got trapped in a... That's unfortunate. Okay. All right. Number two. Can you read me now? (laughs) When police in Vancouver, Canada asked to search Jason Pache's apartment for drugs, he was not a suspect. In fact, they were looking for someone else. That all changed when they got a look at how his name was listed on his cell phone. Ready for this? Yeah. Jason Pache, drug dealer. (gasps) (laughs) Do you know our daughter has me listed in her phone as Mother Dearest? Oh, my God. No wire hangers (laughs) ever. She thinks it's funny. Oh, geez. Oh, my gosh. All right, number three. Uh, Say that again. There was a brilliant move made by a 43-year-old man in California. According to KLTV, police responded to a call about an assault and showed up to find that our guy had kicked his girlfriend and had pulled out a box knife and threatened (gasps) to cut her. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Police broke up the scuffle and one of them spotted some drug paraphernalia. That's when the man genius here said, hold on a second. I need to get my crack pipe (gasps) (laughs) and then got in a fight with one of the officers. Did he hurt the girl? You know, I'm, I'm sure he did. He kicked her. Well, But as you can guess, this guy's now facing a laundry list of serious charges against him, including crack. And assault and battery. Yeah. Go to jail, dude. Yeah, exactly. Number four, and finally, is that a chicken in your pants or are you just happy to see me? Cluck, cluck. <laughs> a New Hampshire, the chicken dance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A New Hampshire man was busted for stealing some poultry products by stuffing them in his pants. According to WMUR, the 31-year-old allegedly hid the package poultry products in his pants. Say that 10 times fast. He put the package in with his package? Yeah, he hid the package poultry products in his package pants. Okay. And then walked out of the store, bypassing the whole bit where most people pay for groceries. Employees stopped the chicken man, and he was arrested shortly thereafter and charged with willful concealment. All I got to say is this. If you got room for chicken in in where the other parts should be. Yeah. Well, I'm just trying to imagine what kind of poultry products he shoved in his pants. I mean, were they chicken breast, chicken nuggets? 
size. <laughs> exactly. Well, his nuggets weren't too big if he could fit other chicken in <laughs> there. That's all you, I'm saying. I'm telling you. Well, there you go. There's your bless your heart. <laughs> Well, if you have a bless your heart or you know somebody's heart who needs blessing yep. or chicken nuggets in their pants, <laughs> oh, my gosh, yeah. go to hitchtohomicide.com. There's a pull-down menu where you can also suggest a case. And that would be really cold, too. I, I, okay, go ahead. There's just so many things wrong with putting chicken down your pants. Yeah, I just keep thinking Anything down your pants at the grocery store. Yeah, don't do it. Yeah, you touch it, you buy it. Yeah. That's the way I feel. Exactly. Don't pop it and put the chicken back. <laughs> oh, man. That's all we have. <laughs> yeah, just think on that for a while, folks. Yeah, that's all we have today. I hope you have, go out and have a wonderful, if you're in the United States, have a wonderful Labor Day yep. weekend. Enjoy that day off. That's my amazing husband out there. And that's my beautiful bride in the booth. Join us next time on Hitch to Homicide. Bye, y'all.